0: Hi, and welcome to Bread. We are an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church, and we are in a new series called If Jesus is Supreme. In a world of half-truths, split opinions, and divergent beliefs, Paul's letter to the Colossians makes a surprisingly concrete claim. Jesus is supreme. He is the ruler of the universe, the authority in all of life. And when we fully lay hold of this fact, every area of our life is affected. So this is a series about the process of maturing. It's for everyone who knows there is more.
1: Um, But my name is Raul, if we haven't met before. Um, I work here for Bread. And two weeks ago, we began a new series on the book of Colossians, the, the letter of the Colossians. And it's one of my favorites because in... It's unique in that Paul was writing to a people that he's never met, kind of like us. The church was started by a guy named Epaphras, who heard Paul preach and brought this message to his hometown of Colossae. And Colossae was located in modern-day Turkey, and in its heyday, it was praised for its textile industry. It produced a unique purple-colored wool and so imagine if the alleys or rodeo specialized uh, solely in a purple fabric. That's what Colosse was like. It was unique. It was bustling and busy. And Colosse was also a polytheistic city, just like much of the Roman world. And Colosse literally means village of the giants referring both to its pagan gods and the city's ability to make wealthy and powerful social giants of its people. And Paul is writing this letter essentially to say that Jesus is the ultimate giant who overshadows the rest. In other words, Jesus is supreme and he's greater than the giants of our own lives. And what I'm going to talk about today is Jesus's fullness, his supremeness, his giantness spilling over into our lives, and what that looks like. But first, we're going to read Colossians 2, and Shannon's going to read that for us. Let's give it up for Shannon, our first ever scripture reader. How do you feel?
0: Great. Great.
1: Over to you. Are you going to hold it for me? I can.
0: Yeah.
1: Thanks. You're welcome. I got you.
0: Colossians 2, verses 1 through 10. I want you to know how much I struggle for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who haven't known me personally. My goal is that their hearts would be encouraged and united together in love, so that they might have all the riches of assurance that come with understanding, so that they might have the knowledge of the secret plan of God, namely, Christ. All the treasures and wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I'm telling you this so that no one deceives you with convincing arguments, because even though I am absent physically, I am with you in spirit. I'm happy to see the discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. So live in Christ Jesus the Lord, and in the same way as you received him, be rooted and built up in him, be established in faith, and overflow with thanksgiving just as you were taught. See to it that nobody enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception which conform to human traditions and the way of the world rather than Christ. All the fullness of deity lives in Christ's body, and you have been filled by him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. Colossians 2.
1: Amazing. Thank you. Let's give it up for Shannon. It's, it's really great hearing from different uh, voices. I, I love that about church. But I'm a big fan of adventure movies. Anything with a treasure hunt just gets me. And Ash and I cannot be more incompatible in this. She wants to watch reality TV, and I want to watch The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I find these stories inspiring and compelling because they get at a very real human desire, the desire for fulfillment. The Goonies aren't fulfilled until they go and find the secret treasure to bail out their parents. Or in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Ben Stiller's character isn't fulfilled until he finds the final cover photo for Time Magazine's last printed issue. And Indiana Jones is fulfilled only when ancient artifacts and treasures are in their rightful place away from the bad guys. These stories illustrate our longing for treasure, our longing for that thing that will fulfill us or give us that superpower or that thing that will save us. These stories um, all have something in common. There is a map or a clue involved. And as a kid, I loved to draw up treasure maps. I'd bury treasure in the backyard. And then I'd draw a map And then days later, find that thing that I buried. I was a very odd child. But I kept myself busy. Um, But there's something fulfilling about finding treasure. There's something fulfilling about not walking away empty. And I think we find these stories moving for this reason. That treasure hunts are about empty people becoming full. And it's what the gospel is about. Empty people becoming full. Full not in and of themselves, but full in and through the living God. But empty is where we start. If we're humans, if humans were given a diagnosis, it would say suffers from emptiness. There's a deep longing in the human soul. We know that something is missing, or rather someone is missing. And often People talk about coming to faith in Jesus, and they describe their previous selves as kind of missing something. Their hearts like a puzzle missing that last piece that is Jesus. And we all look for that missing piece to fill on our own. We're experts at trying to fill ourselves. We're very good at making all kinds of attempts to fill our souls with what we think we're missing. And it doesn't take long to see that, specifically for us in the West, that emptiness plagues us. It is something that drives consumerism. We take more and more, hoping that just a little bit more will fill the emptiness that we have. A little more money, a little more sex, a little more influence, a few more things. And even when we come to faith, this temptation often surfaces. We're tempted to to fill ourselves. And this was the age-old temptation that even the Colossians were facing. They were tempted to fill themselves. They were being lured by mystical pagan tricksters. And they were being attracted to this kind of spiritual elitism by Jewish Gnostics. And the two groups were undermining Jesus' sufficiency. It's like they were on either side of the Christians at Colossae saying, are you sure you're fine with just Jesus? He's only half of what you need. Don't you want more? In other words, did God really say serve him alone? Did God really say serve him alone? Alone, And this sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's similar to what the serpent said in the Garden of Eden. The serpent convinces the humans that they only have half of what they need, when in reality they had it all. And the serpent lies to them and says, reach for the fruit and you'll have all that you need. And so, from Genesis until now, the temptation that humans face is the same. It's a temptation to fill ourselves, a temptation to reach beyond Jesus. And I've been married uh, for six years, and something that I've learned about myself is just how far sighted I am, specifically when it comes to looking in the fridge. I'll go to the fridge and I'll look for something, more often than not, it's ranch. Um, And as I open the fridge, I don't see anything. I'm looking in the back, I'm digging through bottles, I'm pulling out drawers, and I'll say to Ashley, hey, we're out of ranch. And she'll say, are you sure? And in full confidence, without a doubt, I'll say, yeah. Yeah. And she'll say, if I come over and find it, which if you've heard these words, you know what's about to happen. Every time when she looks, she finds it out of nowhere. I swear it magically appears in her hand. It literally spawns in her hand. But truthfully, it's always been there in front of me. I was just too farsighted to see it. And similarly, the one that we need is right there in front of us. But often there are moments when we are too farsighted to see him. And the central point of this passage, what Paul is trying to say to the Colossians is this, is Jesus makes empty people full. And what he's doing here is he's putting Jesus before us and saying, he's the one that you're looking for. He's the one that you need. He makes you and I full. And this is what God has done from the beginning. This isn't anything new. I'm going to read a short story from 2 Kings, which also is a good name for a thrift store if anybody's looking to do that. Here is 2 Kings, the story of an empty widow becoming full. I'm just going to read this along in the message paraphrase. It says, one day the wife of a man from the guild of prophets called out to Elisha. I think that's what we need to name our prayer team. Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know what a good man he was, devoted to God. And now the man to whom he was in debt is on his way to collect my two children as slaves. And Elisha said, I wonder how I can be of help. Tell me, what do you have in your house? Nothing, we're empty, she said. But then she looked a little closer in the fridge and she said, well, I do have a little oil. Here's what you do, Elisha said. Go up and down the street and borrow empty jugs and bowls from all your neighbors. And not just a few, all that you can get. Then come home and lock the door behind you, pour oil into each container, when it is full, set it aside. She did what he said. She locked the door behind her and her sons, and as they brought the containers to her, she filled them. When all the jugs and bowls were full, she said to one of her sons, another jug, please. And he said, that's it, mom. There are no more jugs. Then the oil stopped. She went and told the story to Elisha and he said, Go sell the oil and make good on your debts. Live, both you and your sons, on what is left. See, this story isn't necessarily about empty jars being full. It's about God redeeming a widow and her sons. It's about God taking an empty situation... And filling it with the future. God takes the little that she has and uses it to fill her with the future. God pays the debt that would have destroyed them. And there are countless stories. I'll go through just a few of them. The prophet Ezekiel has a vision of bones void of life, filled with breath and becoming alive. And when Jesus feeds the crowds, he takes empty stomachs and he makes them full. And at the wedding at Cana, Jesus makes empty jars full of good wine, not just regular wine. The Bible is very specific. It notes good wine, wine that is tastier than what the host provided. And when the disciples are fishing um, and catching nothing, Jesus says to them, cast on the other side, and their nets became full with fish. See, the point of these stories is that God makes empty people full. And what happened last week, what we just heard about in church, is God making people full, God filling people with love, with hope, with the future. See, God is still filling people today. And I'm simply here to remind us that in Jesus, you and I have all that we need. That He is enough For you, when your past is overwhelming, he meets you with compassion. When our tanks are empty and we're feeling depleted, he fills us with his spirit. When we're tripped up on self-condemnation, he fills us with grace. I love what John writes here. He says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There is grace for you. Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you're a living, breathing person, you are a candidate to receive grace. And not just one dose of grace, endless amounts, because grace doesn't expire. Grace is the unearned, undeserved kindness of God, and it never runs out, it never runs dry, and he is full of it. And elsewhere, Jesus says this, he says, my grace is enough for you, because power is made perfect in weakness, in other words, my grace is made full in your emptiness. And he goes where there's room. He goes where there's space for his grace. And so when we're empty, he brings his fullness. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And we need the fullness of who he is. When we're weak, when we're lacking, when we're empty, he comes to fill us up. And so the overarching point of Colossians, if Colossians had one phrase to summarize it all, it would be, Jesus is the center, or Jesus is supreme. And if we're set on making Jesus the center, then his promise is that you and I will be full. You and I will be made full Have you ever walked into a room and had your eyes drawn to a specific thing? It may be a colored wall or an art piece. This is called a focal point. It's something that captures our attention in a room. And over quarantine, Ash and I led a small group on Zoom. Uh, Ike was in our group. And at the time, Ike had this huge shack cutout in his room it was always in the backdrop and it every time we logged on it captured our attention it was the focal point of the frame and it still haunts me to this day (laughs) ike have you guys put it up yet great it's um But the most aesthetically pleasing focal points are the ones that are set intentionally. It's why museums and cathedrals and art galleries are so moving. Our sight, our eyes are drawn to something beautiful. Or in my case, shack. If our lives were a room, Jesus needs to be the focal point. When his beauty and majesty are at the center... Then our lives can be full. And so allow Jesus to be the shack in your room. That image is going to stay with you forever. You're welcome. But we live in fullness when Jesus is the center. And living in Jesus is the goal. In Colossae, well... Tricksters and Gnostics had their heads in the clouds and were calling the church to an elevated kind of spiritual elitism. Paul is saying, Hey, guys, we we need to ground you a little bit here. We need to ground you in, in Jesus. And so he writes this He says, Live in Christ Jesus the Lord in the same way as you received him. Be rooted and built up in him. Be established in faith and overflow with thanksgiving. Just as you were taught. And so the aim here is to continue. The aim is to keep on. The the goal is to stay the course with Jesus. But what exactly does that look like? What does it look like to keep on with Jesus? Last week I posted on Instagram a screenshot of my missed calls. And a couple of you responded and I appreciated the feedback. But they were all uh, spam calls, calls that tried to lure me into giving my credit card info, calls that tried to sell me on solar panels for my house. I don't own a house. Don't know how that happened. At least somebody thinks I own a house. But I think as American Christians, we've also maybe received a spam call. A call that has maybe sold us on a version of Christianity that is a bit self-serving and maybe robbed of its power. We may have been given a Jesus that looks more like a genie than a king. And Martin Luther King makes note of this. He saw this in the 60s in a sermon of his. He said that the main point of Christianity is not to make you happy. It's to do God's will. And it doesn't mean God doesn't want you to be happy. Remember, he comes to bring life and life abundantly. He brings fullness of life. But what he's talking about is a version of Christianity that is self-related. One that ignores the injustices toward our neighbors. One that doesn't look like Jesus. And so keeping on with Jesus is a life set on following him. It's what we often refer to as discipleship. This is God's will for us. And as we keep on with him, these things will happen. I made a little presentation for you guys. Um, But you'll notice that what the points I'm about to make, you'll notice that these are directional, that God doesn't want us to be stagnant in our faith. We're called to be moving, to be growing, only because Then we can be the people that God has called us to be. And so firstly, oh, this is you and me. We are um, orange dots because it's fall. And it actually feels like fall today, which is nice. Um, And so that's us. So firstly, he roots us downward. He sets our roots deep in Him so that we are immovable. When the storms blow through our lives, you'll notice that the true foundations are exposed. And Jesus invites us to be grounded in Him. He is the rock that can handle the weight of our lives, and His is the foundation that can outlast any storm. And this doesn't mean we don't struggle, it doesn't mean that we're untouchable. It means that at the end of the day, we can be confident, you and I can rest assured that God's got you. That God's got you. In the midst of what may, of what may be going on in the world, what may be going on in family, at, at work, God's got you. And it also means that Jesus nourishes us. The spiritual disciplines are ways that he sustains us. These are tools to help us be grounded ...and nourished in Him. And we play a part with Him as we practice these. You know, things like prayer, rest, worship, silence, Scripture reading... ...are practices that open us up to Him. But ultimately, Jesus does the heavy lifting. As we participate in these things, God comes in and He does something with it. He makes us rooted. He nourishes our souls... The rest is up to him. If you want a cheesy saying, here's this one Jesus has the miracle grow for your soul. You're welcome. You're welcome. I just had to. It was so easy. Secondly, he builds us upward. You are building material. You're not a pile of useless rocks. Jesus builds you up. He makes something of our lives. He is both the architect and the contractor. And what he wants to build in and through you is far greater than anything that you and I can build on our own. I mean, as I think of it, God took me from East LA and put me in this room with you all. And so... I have full confidence that if God can do that with me, then he can do incredible things with you. Because I didn't come from a family of pastors and preachers. I'm not the most academically inclined. And I'm a bit awkward. But, God, I believe that God is good and what he wants to build in and through you is good. And he will outbuild whatever you got. And if you ever have a doubt about that, just remember he's the carpenter. And so he knows a thing or two about building stuff. Thirdly, he establishes us. This is three of like 17, so we'll be here for (laughs) a while. I appreciate old buildings and businesses Um, And if you notice, most often they'll have an established date. It's the date that the building was set in place or the date the the, uh, business began its mission. And God has put an established date on you. God's put an established date on you. He set you in place to use your gifts, to exercise faith, and to do what he's called you to do. And his will for you, and not me, is that we'd grow in our gifts and skills and bring his flourishing to those around us. He establishes us forward. And lastly, he produces inward gratitude or he transforms us from the inside out. When Jesus is your center, when you've been filled with him, gratitude will just naturally spill out of you. He will change the way you see things. He transforms you from the inside out, not with pressure or panic or punishment, but with grace. He'll produce thankfulness in you so much so that it will leave other people wondering, how can you be so thankful? Do you not realize what's happening? How can you be so thankful? but it is the fullness of God that transforms us from the inside out so that we see things differently. We see things from a heavenly perspective. There's a great quote by a Jesuit priest that says, it's not joy that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us joyful. And Brené Brown's research supports the fact that it's not joy that produces thankfulness, it's thankfulness that produces joy. And so if we're a little bit low on joy, my challenge for us is to practice a little bit of gratitude. And the Bible says to be thankful in everything, not necessarily be thankful for everything, but be thankful in it because it recognizes that you and I will go through some difficult times. And you can be thankful, not for the hard season, but in the hard season. Because in the midst of it, His grace doesn't leave you empty. And gratitude is the gateway into His presence. It's why we begin with worship. It's why we begin with giving thanks. It's why we begin with songs. Because there's something about lifting up Jesus that, that, that makes him supreme in, in light of everything going on. I loved what Ben said this morning. And I, and, I, and I think that is what God is doing, is he wants to be lifted up. He, he wants our eyes on him so that we're not defeated by the, by the small battles happening around us. And so let us put Jesus in the center and allow him to root us, to build us, to establish us, and to produce gratitude in us, to transform us from the inside out. Let's be followers of the living God who are growing downward and upward and forward and inward. And you and I have everything that we need for this. You're not missing anything that you don't already have in Jesus. Because you have been filled by him. But we leak, don't we? We are like bottles or jugs with cracks. Cracks that other people have put on us. Cracks that we've put on ourselves. Cracks that come from just living in a broken world. And there may be a number of us who are experiencing depression, and this can really leave you feeling empty. And I don't want to speak too much outside of my scope of expertise here. We've got a number of therapists that can do that. But I will say that Jesus is sensitive to that. That He is He has given us all the tools to be able to navigate the reality of depression. We believe in medicine. We believe in therapy. We believe God can use any tools. And if this is an enduring experience for you, please don't count yourself out of being filled with the love of Jesus. It may be complex. And there may be people who don't fully understand. But God is an expert at meeting us in the complexities. And so we leak his presence. We're full but we need to be filled ongoingly. And what I've noticed is that the most mature Christians are the people who've walked with Jesus for decades and decades and decades are the ones who admit their need for more of him. And so let us not be Christians who are empty of Christ. My hope is that we would be overflowing with his spirit, that we'd be thirsty for his presence, that we'd be like playful dogs at a park panting for water. And so, my question to us is this Are we filled by him? Have we maybe been trying to fill ourselves? Are we a bit empty? We often speak of church as being a gas station or charging station, if you will, where we come to be filled, we come to be charged. And so you're here, get your fill, get your charged, imagine how silly it would be to pull up to a gas pump and say, well, that was, that was nice, and then just drive off without getting any gas. Jesus wants to fill you with his energy. He wants to fill you with his love. He wants to fill you with his grace. And honestly, there is no amount of, of God's love that is ever too much. There's often people who say, well, well, you, you speak too much on God's love. And honestly, if you really understand the power of God's love, you can't speak on it enough. and so he wants to fill you and i with his love and as the band comes up and we go into a song let's begin with giving thanks i know it's not november but it's coming but just remembering that gratitude is the gateway into his presence the bible says that the bible says that we could enter his his courts, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And so let us begin with thanks. And as we begin to sing, in your own words, ask him to fill you. Let's maybe take a moment to do an internal evaluation and and ask, are, are we feeling a bit empty? Are we a bit depleted? And ask God to meet you in that. Because he loves to meet us where there's space. He loves to meet us where there's room. And so in your own words, let's ask him to fill us.